Are you willing to put aside all speculation and announce to the people here that you are not running in 2020? No. Overall, wages are down. People are working longer hours for less money. Obama these aren't illegal immigrants. Uh, 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 Noting that world leaders laughed at President Trump. You know what it is? My new slogan, 2020. Keep America great. Hello and welcome to 2020 Vision, a podcast charting the dizzying highs and earth-shattering lows as we race towards the 2020 US presidential election. My name is Drew Sheldrick and in the months ahead I'll be joined by experts, guests and friends of the United States Study Centre at the University of Sydney for their take on the week's events, what it all means for the future of the Democratic and Republican parties and, of course, the race for the White House. Yes, uh, November 2020 is two years away, but with the midterm elections now decided, the campaign to decide the next American president has well and truly begun. On Wednesday, Brian Walsh, president of the pro-Trump super PAC, America First Action, declared the re-elect begins today and it's all in and all on the line. So, gird your loins, we have the always bruising primary battles, a fight for the ideological heart of the Democratic Party, a potential attempt at presidential impeachment proceedings, a host of Democrat-initiated inquiries into the activities of the Trump administration and that lingering Mueller investigation, all to get through before Americans head back to the ballot box. They're hundreds of miles away, though. They're hundreds and hundreds of you miles away. That, that's I not an invasion. Should, honestly, uh, I think you should let me run the country. You run CNN. All right. And if you did it well, your ratings well, let me would be ask, much better. If I, if I okay, may ask enough. one other question, Mr. President, if I may, if I may ask Peter, one other question, are you worried? That's enough. That's Mr. enough. Mr. President, I, that's well, I was enough. going to ask one of the, the other folks. That's that enough. I'll tell you what, CNN should be ashamed of itself having you working for them. You are a rude, terrible person. You shouldn't be working for CNN. Our first guest was an advisor to U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry and an associate professor of strategy and policy at the U.S. Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island. These days, he's a senior fellow at the United States Study Center. Dr. Charles E. Dell, welcome to 2020 Vision. Drew, thanks very much for having me on. On top of those uh, impressive credentials I just listed, Charles, you're a historian, uh, which makes a perfect segue for my first question. Uh, What does history tell us about presidents who find themselves without a majority in the House of Representatives, as President Trump has this week? Well, history kind of points to a couple of different things. Uh, One, uh, once you lose uh, majorities, uh, it's harder to get things done. Uh, This is the norm. Uh, In fact, even if this is a very unusual president, but Mm -hmm. this is a norm, divided government, particularly after the midterms. Pushing legislation becomes much harder because you actually now have checks. Mm -hmm. Uh, The second thing that it's pointed us towards in the last couple of years is because it's seen by most presidents as a course correction, Uh, that the way forward, particularly when you have to work with a party that's in opposition and holding at least one branch of Congress, Mm -hmm. is through compromise. So you saw both Barack Obama before him. You saw uh, George W. Bush. In some ways, you saw even Bill Clinton do this going back further. Understand, state that they had taken a thumping or a shellacking and then begin to look for moves where they could work with uh, their opponents. Mm -hmm. 
that is not a good guide to what we're going to see moving forward here, I don't think. Okay. Um, if Trump's domestic policy agenda is disrupted by a sort of hostile house, uh, are we likely to see him turn his attention to foreign policy more? And what sort of power does he wield there as opposed to sort of those in Congress? Uh, I think it's very likely that it will be disrupted if only because Trump will disrupt himself. Uh, It will be hard for him to stay on message, particularly as things heat up. And that's going to heat up with the Mueller probe. It's also going to heat up when there are more checks and oversight on him. Uh, So he will have a tendency to turn more towards foreign policy. And that, too, is normal, that when presidents feel frustrated at home, more stymied, they tend to move towards foreign policy. Mm -hmm. In general, actually, you see this more happening in the second two years of an eight-year term uh, when when presidents are in legacy-defining mode. Mm -hmm. But you could possibly see it here as well. You wrote a piece for the Nikkei Asian Review last month titled, Should Asia Care About the Midterms? Um, in that you wrote that our region could anticipate some shifts in sort of US foreign policy um, following the midterms, especially um, in regards to areas like China, US-China policy. Does Tuesday's result this week sort of confirm that assessment for you? Uh, it does, but in some ways it's independent of electoral outcomes. Yeah. Uh, and the reason I say that is because while there's a ton of different areas that uh, Trump and the White House are going to bump heads with mm-hmm. the Democratic House, no less with the Republican-held Senate, yeah. the one area where you see a lot of convergence is on China. Mm-hmm. And that's true. Um, it's a bipartisan uh, sense that the agreement that was made with China when the U.S. was working on engagement with China starting in the 70s but really into the 80s and then once they were brought into the uh, WTO, the bets that were placed have not worked out. Mm-hmm. And that's true because China was in a different place. China agreed to play by certain rules and it is now much stronger. It's not a developing nation and it hasn't played by those rules. Right. So it's seen as having multiple implications for American domestic workers, mm-hmm. uh, for the American military, for allies in the region. So this is the one area where you actually have broad bipartisan consensus. And yep. that's true on the economic front, on the uh, military strategic front. Uh, in some ways, with the Democrats taking the House, you might even see a stronger um, Asia policy and a more confrontational policy, uh, at least that's how Beijing would read it, mm-hmm. because the Dems are more likely to be much more vocal on issues such as human rights. And when you have the internment of more than a million Muslim Uyghurs in Western China, this is an issue that actually brings Dems and Republicans together. And again, your question, Drew, was are we likely to see this being an area, uh, you know, despite the election or because of the election? Mm-hmm. And I actually see that while there are lots of areas where there'll be butting of heads between Congress and the president, Mm -hmm. this is an area where I think they agree and it's in their interest to agree. And the constituents on both sides of the aisle and even outside of government agree on this one too. You mentioned butting heads. Uh, Last month, Axios got their hands on a list of potential congressional inquiries that Democrats might launch with control of the House. Um, Now that that's happened, um, you know, some of the things listed were were areas like uh, Trump's tax returns, his relationship with adult film star Stormy Daniels, um, (laughs) the firing of former FBI Director James Comey. Uh, Firstly, do you think we are going to see a lot of these subpoena-powered investigations? And are they likely to extend to areas like foreign policy decisions made by the administration? Yes and yes. Right. Uh, I mean, I, I don't, uh, you know, I think none of us really need to hear or see more on the Stormy Daniels investigation. Yeah, yeah. That's all been aired quite publicly. <laughs> uh, but on some other areas, yes. Uh, I mean, the, the challenge uh, that um, many Americans have seen is that Congress, which is a co-equal branch of the government, mm-hmm. has an oversight role. Right. And while there has been Republican control of both the House and Senate, 
there has not been an oversight of this investigation. I mean, yeah. you, you can look at this across the board. If we think about, for instance, when the hurricane came through Puerto Rico, mm-hmm. uh, you know, 3,000 Americans killed, um, you know, lights out for a long time, slow response. Yeah. There have been no investigations on this. Mm-hmm. The deployment of 15,000 service members to the border may be warranted, maybe not warranted, but a massive deployment. No hearings on this at all. No hearings on whether or not North Korea has produced results, uh, Kim's meetings with this. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think you know we have to kind of parse out that there is oversight, yeah. uh, dragging secretaries, assistant secretaries, deputy assistant secretaries uh, up to the hill. Mm-hmm. And they've not always been forthcoming with this administration to say, well, what is the strategy here? What is the policy? We want to hear what you're doing. You can't just be secretive about this. Yeah. And then there's actually subpoena powers and investigations. Those are different. Uh, but you, know, you, you cited the Axios report. It's not even secret that they got Adam Schiff, who's the now going to be the ranking Democrat in charge of the uh, House Intelligence Committee. So oversight on matters of intelligence, including in some ways where that stalled Mueller probe has gone, although it's a separate investigation, wrote an op-ed uh, three weeks ago in the Washington Post where he said, if Democrats take over the House, this is what we're, here's what yeah. we're going to do. Yeah. Now, the first paragraph and the last paragraph are really great. <laughs> the rest kind of seemed like a document that he passed around to every other minority um, uh, committee head uh, who was about to become the majority ones. Right. So you got a laundry list. Yeah. The first and the last part are interesting because he said, but let's prioritize certain things above other things. Mm-hmm. And one of those is going to be to make sure that Rust- Russian interference in the American elections is thoroughly investigated in there. Yeah. There are a lot of unique personalities among the successful candidates coming out of uh, Tuesday's election. Um, there's also a particularly good showing among minority candidates. Mm-hmm. Are you seeing any presidential contenders among sort of the successful or maybe even unsuccessful candidates um, that sort of outperformed expectations? Yes. Uh, but the, the point is, uh, how, how widely can you look? Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I think I read, I've been telling people that I, I see like about 20 potential candidates. Uh, I was corrected because I read an article online that said, no, there are more than 30 that are uh, already uh, up and in the running. Um, So, uh, look, when we look specifically at the congressional races and the gubernatorial uh, races and whether or not they're exciting candidates that have emerged from that, there are. Uh, But they've been exciting to different segments of both the Democratic base Mm -hmm. and of the national base. So there's some that are very exciting in terms of representing new types of figures that have emerged. Uh, Minority figures. Um, women are by no means a minority, but they are underrepresented, of course, in the U.S. Congress. Yes. And you saw them kind of sweeping the decks, although they're still only at 25 percent of the Congress, yeah. uh, but perf- outperforming uh, all of their male colleagues. Uh, you saw a lot of veterans, uh, service members, national security professionals. There's a lot that mobilized the excitement, and you had some very compelling and charismatic candidates. Most people have focused in on Beto O'Rourke yeah, in Texas, yeah. uh, Gillum down in Florida, no less Stacey Abrams. But, you know, there's something to be said, too. There are also people that aren't as exciting in those states, but that ended up winning in other areas, too. You know, before um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez yes. uh, won her race uh, in a special – well, not in a special election, in primary, um, you had Connor Lamb, a very centrist Democrat, mm-hmm. winning in a Pennsylvania rural yep. district. And he just won re-election, too. So there are a lot of exciting candidates. The question is – 
who is going to be able to mobilize more excitement? Who's going to, because this is a presidential campaign and it's going to be a very expensive one, yeah. who's going to be able to bring out donors to it as well? And also, if you've been elected governor, I mean, surely you're not sort of giving out the post after two years or a year, you know, just a run for president as well. So. Oh, Drew, you know so little about American <laughs> politics. Oh, well, you'd hope not. You'd hope not. You know, one of the oldest tropes <laughs> is uh, for senators that are running, yeah. you know, their opponents will critique them, say, you weren't even in the Senate to cast any votes because yeah. you were out running. Yeah. Well, the same is true for governors who are running. You weren't even in the state, but that's never stopped any yeah. of them before. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, we've seen Attorney General Jeff Sessions go already since the midterms. Um, there's also been some suggestion for the last couple of months that Defence Secretary Jim Mattis may resign, and the, sort of, the president's relationship with him certainly seems a bit sort of icy. He's called him a Democrat in some media interviews. Uh, do you think he'll go? Uh, I think I have no clue okay. uh, because – no, that's an honest answer <laughs> yeah, because, course, course. Uh, you know, Mattis has held his cards uh, very close. But I do think it's important to note that uh, Mattis has played the politics of this not at all. Mm -hmm. uh, and he's been very clear that his role is to be as nonpartisan as possible, protect the men and women uh, who are in uniform. And if I had to guess – I think that Mattis will never resign. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I think he will not go until the president fires him to his face. Right. And I think that that is an unlikely but not an impossible scenario. Mm -hmm. If he does go, um, who would be a, a likely replacement? Look, you just jumped right to the question that he is <laughs> going. I don't think he's going. But if he does go, look, it was a very diplomatic answer, which I would expect from a former diplomat. But who, <laughs> who do you think would replace him? Well, look, uh, th there are two different ways that you answer that question because one is who would Trump like uh, to replace? Place him yeah. and two, who will he get confirmed? Mm -hmm. Now we know that those the answer to both of those are the same because yep. he has a Senate that has now actually moved more towards the Republican side. So there are likely to be less checks. So who he nominates is likely to be confirmed, not only in any hypothetical changing of the Secretary of Defense, but also in Attorney General, also in U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. So the names that have come up previously are uh, both Tom Cotton, yep. uh, senator from Arkansas, and Lindsey Graham, senator from South Carolina. But again, uh, you know, I tend to think that in defense, at least, that's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's going to be some concern maybe among more centrist Republicans if Mattis goes that, you know, so he's always referred to as this last adult in the room, really? I mean, do you think there's going to be some grave fears about the administration once he does leave? Yeah, I mean, there are always grave fears about this administration, and there are <laughs> lots of causes for there to be grave concerns. <laughs> um, but it... It depends under what circumstances, for what reasons, and of course, who is appointed. Because okay. I just named Lindsey Graham and Tom Cotton, but the other name that I hadn't mentioned that I've seen float around too is retired General um, uh, Keene, mm -hmm. uh, who was a retired Army general who was George W. Bush's principal advisor on the surge. Mm -hmm. uh, he is a Fox News personality at times, so apparently the president likes him. He's also a really solid player. So... Look, very few people are Jim Mattis, but yeah. it depends, of course, who he go, who might replace him under what circumstances. On the eve of the midterms, President Trump made the surprise announcement that he'd be nominating Arthur Culver House Jr. to be the next U.S. ambassador to Australia. What's your assessment of the pick, and uh, are you expecting a sort of quick and successful confirmation? Uh, I, I think it's a um, it's a really good pick, and it's a what makes it so good is it's a very solid pick. Mm -hmm. um, 
I'm an American. I'm obviously not an Australian, not here to say how Australians should think about anything. Sure. But when people evaluate ambassadors, there are certain things that you look for in them. Mm -hmm. uh, one is the ability to communicate not only to the State Department, but directly to the president. Mm -hmm. So someone who is trusted by the president. Culvehouse ticks that box because he ran the vetting process for the vice president, for yes. Mike Pence. Yes. And uh, Sarah Palin as well. That's true. Famously. That matters not at all to Trump. Okay. But the Pence pick matters enormously to him. So he's a mm -hmm. trusted person for Trump. A second thing that matters a lot uh, is whether or not the ambassador has the ability not only to speak to the White House, but also to be able to tap key centers of power within Washington. Mm -hmm. Because in Canberra, you're going to be looking, of course, at the White House, but yep. also at congressmen, senators, uh, and the broader Washington scene. Culver House has been one of the mainstays of the GOP establishment in Washington for the last 40 plus years. It's mm -hmm. got to start on the Hill worked as White House counsel. These are things that tick that box as well. Yeah. Um, you know, the only uh, two other things that strike me as positive uh, in this regard are, one, I know um, people have said, he's not Harry Harris. Yeah. Uh, isn't that too bad? Uh, and maybe yes, maybe no, but only Harry Harris is Harry <laughs> Harris. And if we think that Harry Harris might have brought a wealth of experience in terms of uh, knowing the security environment here, uh, that's potentially a very good thing. But what Harry Harris didn't have was astute acumen of the business space. Mm -hmm. And as someone who has been a white shoe uh, lawyer handling international clients for years, no less someone who's been involved with national security cases, this is actually a pretty full and really useful package, I think, as ambassador here. Charles, thanks very much for helping us make sense of all the midterms madness today. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Drew. Would you now, with the whole world watching, tell President Putin, would you denounce what happened in 2016, and would you warn him to never do it again? My people came to me, Dan Coates came to me and some others, they said they think it's Russia. Uh, I have uh, President Putin, uh, he just said it's not Russia. I will say this, I don't see any reason why it would be. Rana Gurgich is a lecturer in US politics and foreign policy at both the Department of Government and International Relations at the University of Sydney and the United States Studies Centre. Uh, she's also soon to be joining Harvard University's Minda de Gunsberg Centre for European Studies. Grana, thanks for helping us christen this inaugural episode of the podcast. Thank you so much. Great to be one of the guinea pigs or <laughs> pioneers, whatever you want to call us. But, we'll go uh, easy on yeah. you. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, President Trump uh, heads off to France today to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the end of World War I. Uh, there was some suggestion from National Security Advisor John Bolton a couple of weeks ago that Trump might hold a meeting with Russian President Vladimir Putin. Um, do you think that's likely to happen? I know he sort of walked it back in the last couple of days. Yeah, and what we've heard uh, from the Russian side is that they are um, not banking really on it, but yeah. that there might be something. If something happens, it's really going to be low-key on the sidelines. Right. Uh, right. more than some sort of uh, formal meeting. We have to remember last time that these two uh, leaders met was in Helsinki, yes, yeah. uh, which was, uh, <laughs> you know, basically as far as Donald Trump's kind of record on foreign policy goes, one of the the, the nadirs for sure yeah. uh, of his presidency, probably in terms of analogy of what he what he's done uh, after after Charlottesville, not to uh, condemn it, condemn it um, similar thing yeah, there in Helsinki. Yeah. I would say. Um, but yeah, so we basically don't know uh, how things are going to look there. Uh, it's it's a bit of a wait and see. Uh, we know that this obviously comes at a time that 
at least at, at uh, the time of our recording, uh, we still don't know whether uh, the U.S. is going to go ahead, actually, with imposing a further round of sanctions yeah. around the, the use of chemical weapons or basically the nerve agent um, against uh, Sergei Skripal in, in the U.K. So that's something that's a bit of a, uh, of a developing story. The 90-day uh, deadline has passed since August 8. <laughs> uh, and obviously this comes amidst obvious or in the wake of uh, the decision or at least a statement by the president that uh, the U.S. would basically be pulling out of the INF Treaty, the yeah, Intermediate yeah. Nuclear Forces Treaty. So that's um, all of those things are are pretty interesting now. Yeah. Further, Likely I mean, to come a, up, though. Who yeah, knows? Yeah. <laughs> no, they'll certainly have a nice chat about the weather. Uh, regrettably, <laughs> Macron is not uh, throwing any sort of uh, military parade for yeah. the uh, centenary of the armistice. But, um, yeah, it's... <laughs> Much to Donald Trump's yeah, uh, sure. disliking, but uh, <laughs> we, yeah, we we know obviously all of the things that are under that carpet yeah. of, of of things uh, that of the, of the kind of um, bugbears in in the U.S. Russia relations. So further adding to to that long laundry list there. What do you think Europe's political class is taking away from the midterms result? I mean, sort of given the, the rocky transatlantic relationship of the last sort of couple of months or maybe two years, um, is there a lesson here maybe in terms of sort of populist politics or populist leaders in Europe? I mean, it's really interesting because I'm trying to find a good metaphor. Is it uh, Europe looking at the United States as a mirror and they, they mm. can see whatever they want to see, basically, yeah. or a kind of Rorschach test? Uh, but it's quite interesting because obviously, you know, if you are a kind of a moderate a centrist leader, you would find some sort of indication to that sort of politics. Mm -hmm. This was certainly presented in Europe as a referendum on Trump and Trumpism. Yep. So uh, to that extent, it hasn't been fully uh, vindicated mm -hmm. uh, gi given uh, the Democrats' success. But equally, you know, uh, if you are a Viktor Orban or if you are, you know, the Polish leadership, basically, or uh, a bunch of these uh, uh, populist parties that have sprang up around Europe, particularly with the anti-immigration agenda, you are seeing that this sort of rhetoric of fear and, fear and anger mm -hmm. really works, yeah. right? Yeah. And uh, this has been President Trump's main message, the, the kind of rallying of, of, uh, of voters uh, against this threat of the uh, Central American caravan, mm -hmm. right? And yeah. that's basically what we are seeing uh, um, in, in large parts of Europe yeah. now playing out uh, given the, the migrants that are coming from, um, from Northern Africa. Do you think some European leaders have sort of stopped looking at the United States for sort of global leadership now? I mean, obviously, you know, immigration is probably a separate issue, but on issues like NATO and, you know, sort of, uh, sort of those sort of bigger global leadership issues, is Europe looking beyond the United States now? Well, we've heard over the past, again, nearly two years uh, from the likes of Angela Merkel yep. and uh, Emmanuel Macron that Europe uh, needs to look elsewhere or yep. needs to look within. Yeah. And I think what's really interesting, obviously, uh, we are recording this now a couple of weeks just after uh, uh, we've heard that um, Angela Merkel is not going to uh, run for re-election. Re yeah. That's number one, but that she's actually stepping down as the leader of the uh, Christian Democrats mm -hmm. in Germany. Uh, and basically, she is in that way 
Um, in a way, stepping down from what everyone saw her natural role would be, the, the kind of leader of this, uh, uh, the remaining kind of rules-based uh, order yeah. club uh, of, of countries. And who's stepping in is Emmanuel Macron, uh, a man that's um, pretty unpopular at home, but mm-hmm. that, he'll, that, that still garners these sort of hopes for his presidency being a kind of Jupiterian presidency. Yeah. And Sarkozy was to an extent like that, basically uh, uh, wanting to assert a greater role for France on the global scale. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, Macron has just recently uh, announced or re-announced his, his uh, great uh, hope for a stronger European Union defense, uh, given that European Union is basically an economic giant but a military dwarf mm-hmm. and and trying to kind of uh, bridge that that gap somehow um and um yeah a lot of a lot of uh, uh Europeans are certainly now seeing with th- this sort of walking back from some of the uh, disarmament uh, or arms control mm-hmm. treaties as a kind of a call to start seriously thinking about how do they protect themselves yeah. especially when Donald Trump is so openly and time and time again, uh, questioning and kind of interrogating uh, his allies and, and whether they're spending, exactly, yeah. <laughs> uh, whether they're spending the magical 2%, right, whether uh, they have a trade deficit and yeah. whether that, you know, if if that kind of defines their relation. So uh, seeing everything through that zero sum prism, uh, it's, it's not a, it's not a great calculus. And yeah. I think that there is a lot more thought being given to that. But equally, I mean, Europe can't do it in any sort of short to medium run. Yeah. Um, they're stuck where they are currently. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is NATO is still there. And there are some states uh, within Europe, particularly Britain, that's now exiting the EU, that uh, won't be that happy to to see these sort of developments proceeding. So um, it's a, all a, a little bit of kind of moving piece, pieces there. Uh, Nikki Haley made a surprise resignation as uh, US ambassador to the United Nations just prior to the midterms. What sort of legacy do you think she leaves from her tenure? Um, And can we expect any kind of change in US engagement with the UN with a new representative when uh, that person's selected? Yeah, so... Everyone is wondering where did Nikki Haley go? Yeah. Is she preparing to yeah, run, run yeah, or what's yeah. happening? And I've heard office, so yeah. many of these kind of stories about maybe she's actually preparing to replace uh, Lindsey Graham yeah, if he who, was to become the Secretary of Defense or something correct, like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. obviously you've speculated with Charlie where Lindsey Graham may or not may or or may not be going. Um, but I think with Haley's. Um, Legacy. It's quite paradoxical in the sense that uh, when she was hired for the job, she was really seen as an establishmentarian mm-hmm. Republican. I yeah. mean, uh, if anything, during 2016, she was uh, uh, one of the uh, supporters for, for, or she endorsed uh, Marco Rubio. Mm-hmm. She was seen potentially as a pick uh, that Hillary Clinton might have feared uh, with this Rubio Haley ticket. Yeah. You know, yep. Republicans, but of kind of different kind, and so on. Um, um, so she got into the job as quite kind of establishment type uh, a candidate or, or uh, appointee. And then what happened was that 
in a lot of ways, she was actually very close to the Trump administration in some of the uh, policies that she was uh, pushing forward, yep. especially being hard on allies yes. and kind of taking note of who voted against the U.S. Yeah. Uh, in that resolution around the uh, um, moving of the embassy and so on. So very much hard on, on Iran. Uh, also, a couple of times found herself in kind of in misstep or as she as she was said to be confused about the, <laughs> the administration's stance on Russia yeah, and sanctions yeah. there. So um, a lot of, I mean, in a lot of ways, uh, uh, kind of a good spokesperson, spokeswoman for, for the president, mm-hmm. but at the same time, never quite part of that uh, clique, I would say. Yeah, in a circle. Um, another former U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, John Bolton, has sort of seen his star rise within the administration lately. If Trump, Trump turns his hands to a sort of more forceful foreign policy after being hamstrung by Democrats in the House of Reps, for example, what sort of influence is Bolton likely to have over areas like Iran policy? Well, I think that Bolton already got what he wanted, right? Mm-hmm. He got into job in, into the job uh, what in late April, yep. and since then, basically, I mean, uh, <laughs> there was this great opinion piece or or uh, about um, John Bolton. I read not that long ago how he actually in his office has two pictures, and one of them is actually President Trump signing the withdrawal from the JCPOA, the uh, Iran nuclear deal, and uh, another one is something to do with the the kind of the, the the campaign that has been going on for um, getting getting rid of the uh, the deal, so that's certainly been kind of at the forefront his of dream. his yeah. exactly. Yeah. So all of his dreams have already come true. Yeah. So what what, what else next? is there to do? <laughs> but I think I mean you know um, both Donald Trump and and John Bolton uh, agree on on uh, the purpose or or the lack of purpose for multilateral institutions mm-hmm. and I, I think that um, in in that they are basically kind of going going in, in lockstep um, with each other um, so everything that uh, kind of follows that line of, of being uh, less inclined to work within multilateral uh, institutions mm-hmm. and uh, uh, basically uh, go with with the the kind of norms and and principles and and regimes that we've had for the past seven decades is going to be uh, uh, great for for Bolton but at the same time we have to also consider the fact that basically um all of all, all of Trump's uh, appointees have at one point or another been at the kind of you know um, at the pinnacle of their power and influence, yep. and then all of a sudden you know out of they've, favor. Exactly. Yeah. So you know um, he should only look at Michael Cohen. Yeah. Or yeah. Some, <laughs> don't get too these, high on media profiles. Exactly. Yeah. Don't don't get too close because uh, it is basically uh, playing with fire, yeah. and um, it might. Be Backfire very, very easily. <laughs> Grana, thanks so much for joining us today. Best Pleasure. of luck in uh, Harvard next year as well. Thank you. I'll be <laughs> thinking of you as I'm uh, snowed under over there, and you guys enjoy the rest of your summer. And You'll and have to call in and autumn. give us updates of how things are on the ground. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> thanks again. Pleasure. 
That's a wrap on the first episode of 2020 Vision. Uh, We'll be back before 2018 closes out and broadcasting weekly from January 2019. In the meantime, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud. Um, And special thanks to the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences at the University of Sydney for their assistance with the recording. And to the Bubba Mara Brass Band for contributing their musical talents to our introduction.